0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out, saying, This was He of whom I said... He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John chapter 1, 1 to 18. Thanks Rowan.
1: Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father, in all humility we ask today that you might grant us the grace to receive your word. We thank you, Father, so much that you have shone light into the darkness. We pray now that we might recognise that great light in Jesus Christ. And by believing, Father, we pray that we might have life in his name. Amen. Did you see that? Oh, yeah, mate! Fully sick! Wicked! Dude! Awesome! Now, that may well be the first time you've heard that phrase, fully sick, uttered from the front of a Sydney Uni lecture theatre. It may well be the last. (laughs) Have you ever noticed, though, in common speech, how some words of great power have become... Utterly pedestrian. Words like awesome. And in other words, profound. Suddenly a piece of mud cake is awesome. You know, a not so really that difficult situation. is elevated, Ah, oh, profound. See, according to the dictionary on my shelf at home, something profound means that it requires deep study or thought. To label something awesome, means that it inspires, quote, reverential respect mixed with wonder. Now, look, there may be a wide variety of emotional and intellectual responses when you are confronted with a piece of mud cake, (laughs) but reverential respect mixed with wonder, requiring deep and extended thought, probably not the response we would normally associate with a piece of cake. I just mention this because the passage that Ryan just read for us today really is worthy of those adjectives. It really is profound. It requires deep study and thought. It truly is awesome. It inspires reverential respect mixed with wonder. And I'm not talking about the prose itself, the words on the page. The wonder is at the truths it proclaims. And the danger, as with so many parts of Christian scripture is that through familiarity, we actually end up robbing this passage of its power and its potency, and it becomes merely pedestrian. So the first question today is this. What is John the Apostle doing in these opening verses of his account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection? For That's what the Gospel of John is, his account. Well, some have described that passage we had read for us as a foyer of a magnificent building. You know, when you walk into a foyer of a grand home, you can see glimpses through doorways to the wonderful rooms beyond. You don't see everything in the house, but you do get a sense of what lies ahead. There's a dining room there, a, a grand staircase taking you up there. There's a maybe a glimpse of the garden through some windows. And these verses do function a bit like that. Most of the themes and the concepts that we've read in that little passage are then filled out by John later on, In his Gospel, the same sort of vein, another person likened it to an overture at an opera. You know, the overture is that first piece of music in the production that often sounds snippets of the major themes of the pieces to come and takes some of those main themes and weaves them together into one succinct piece in its own right. Now, I think these are helpful ways of sort of understanding what we're reading here at the beginning of John's Gospel But I actually think this passage is more than just an introduction of everything to come. I think it also functions as a summary. It pulls all the key answers together. And it's a a succinct answer to a very specific question. I think the question is something like this. What was the one true God doing in the man Jesus of Nazareth? So you've got to remember that the Apostle John who in all likelihood is the one responsible for this gospel that bears his name. If you want more details on that, please come and speak to me afterwards. Remember that that Apostle John, he had had an extraordinary life experience. For three years, he'd lived and travelled and shared in the ministry of this man, Jesus from Nazareth. And he'd seen extraordinary things. He'd witnessed Jesus' teaching, his miracles, his mighty death and then resurrection. How do you make sense of all those astounding things? What was really going on there? I think this passage is John's divinely inspired reflection. It's the God-given answer to that question of what was God doing in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And the first part of John's answer, you can see there on the outline, is that God was revealing himself in Jesus Christ. It'd be good if you can open up the outline there. It's a good idea to take notes here at the public meeting. If you've got a pen, that'll help you focus. And also, it'd be great if you can open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, then we'd love to speak to you afterwards. Please come down and speak to Ryan, and we'll make sure that we can get you a Bible so that you can bring your Bible along to the EU public meetings. A word about just today's outline. I'm going to spend most of my time just at the first subpoints, A and B. We're going to spend almost all our time under those headings and then we'll quickly move through some of the other headings there. So you may need to move the headings around a little bit on your page. Well, God was revealing himself in Jesus Christ. That, I said, is the first part of John's answer. And you'll see there the subheading, the eternal, divine, and creative word. John starts with the word there in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Some people say that John, he was actually trying to connect with some of the non-Christian philosophical currents of his day. Maybe it was the Stoics who had a concept of the Word. Maybe it was uh, Platonic idealism of Philo who also had a, a concept of a Word. I just want to point out, I think if John was really trying to connect with certain philosophical currents of the day... He's just, in a moment, he's about to blow those concepts completely out of the water. He's going to change those concepts so radically. that I don't think that's the primary thing that he's trying to do when he starts talking about the Word. The place to start, if we want to understand what he means by the Word, is you've got to actually look to see what John himself says about this Word. Have a look again at verses 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and then know what we learn. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Straight away, if you know your Old Testament, you're reminded of the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. The very first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning, starts exactly the same way. In Genesis, it's in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John has, I think, deliberately couched the beginning of his story of Jesus with a creation framework. We're going to come back to why he might have done that in a minute. But what does he say then about this word that was there at the beginning? The first thing we notice is the word was there before creation even took place. John casts back earlier even than Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Because Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 starts with God creating. Well, God creating doesn't happen to verse 3 of John chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2 are before creation even takes place. What was there before anything was created? The Word was there. He was there at the very beginning. The Word wasn't created. It has no beginning. The Word is eternal, there with God. But notice, this Word is also divine, he says that the Word was God. This Word wasn't something completely separate from God because the Word was with God, but the Word also was God. Now, the third thing you notice about this Word is that he's the agent of creation. Now, he makes that point there in verse 3, and again, it's a reiterated down in verse 10. You might recall those famous words in Genesis 1 which describe God's creative action. Each day of creation begins the same way. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And it was so. God creates through speech. Through his word. Psalm 33 verse 6 summarises it like this. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Well, why does John, in trying to explain Jesus, go back to creation? I think there's at least two ways that it helps us. First is this, it sets up a framework for understanding Jesus as a continuity and fulfilment of God's purposes for the world. What I mean is this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, yes, and in the beginning was the Word through whom all things were made. There is a continuity to the story being told. We've called this series on the opening chapters of John's Gospel A New Beginning. It's probably the exact wrong title. It wasn't so much a new beginning, but a continuation, a fulfilment of all that God had already begun back there at creation. So in establishing this creation framework for understanding Jesus, John highlights a continuity with God's purposes for creation, that God is fulfilling his purposes in creation. In Jesus. Second thing that I think we gain by having this creation framework is that straight away we know that Jesus is relevant to everybody. See, Jesus was a Jew, born to a Jewish people, born a long time ago in a place most of us have probably never visited. Does he have anything to do with your life, with my life? Quite easy for people to go, well, not really, not a lot. Historical interest maybe. We'd study him just as we would other great figures of history. But no... By setting up a creation framework, suddenly Jesus is relevant to every single human being. How so? Well, all things were created through this Word. There is a relationship between you and the Word, Jesus. All things were created, including you and me, through Him. Suddenly Jesus has universal significance. He has universal relevance. So here we have this eternal, divine, creative word there at the very beginning. He was with God, he was God. So who then is this word? Well, go down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 14 identifies this word as the one and only. Now, the word that that phrase, one and only, is trying to capture is sometimes used in the Bible of an only child. Hence, that's why it's translated here in the NIV that I'm reading, one and only. But it's also used in the Bible sometimes to single out a particular child among siblings. So, for instance, in Hebrews 11.17, Isaac, who wasn't literally Abraham's only child, his only son, But this same word, the same phrase is applied to Isaac. So it might be better to render it the one of a kind son. Because Isaac was Abraham's one of a kind son because he was the son born according to the promise that marked him out from Ishmael. So what this verse probably might be best understood is we've seen his glory, the glory of the one of a kind son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The same designation is used down there in verse 18, you might notice. So who's this word? Well, he's the one-of-a-kind Son who came from the Father. This word is God. He's God the Son. And he's with God. He's at the Father's side, verse 18. He's come from the Father. And in a moment we'll see that that Son is identified with the historical Jesus of Nazareth. So two reflections at this point. What is introduced here? is a unity and a distinction in our understanding of God. This is a distinctly Christian understanding of who God is. That within God there is a unity, there is only one God, the Scriptures proclaim. But there is also a distinction. Within God there is God and His Word. There is the Father and there is the Son. But we don't believe in multiple gods, no, there is a unity, there is only one God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We must not hold one truth such that it drowns out the other. Hold unity so tightly that we lose the distinction or hold distinction so tightly that we lose the unity. Now we haven't yet got to the full Christian Trinitarian picture of who God is because we know from the rest of the scriptures that God is Father, Son and Spirit and the Spirit will make significant appearance later on in John's Gospel. And when we start trying to work out how is God one, but God is Father, Son and Spirit. He's, the Word was with God, but the Word was God. That Trinitarian understanding of God, that is stretching, isn't it? That's demanding. So a little plug here. If you find that demanding, like the rest of us, why don't you come along to EU's annual conference in the middle of the year? We're going to spend five days thinking about the Christian doctrine of God. That's just a little plug. I'll move right along now. <laughs> So the first reflection is that there's a unity and a distinction in God here. second reflection is this. Friends, you have got to beware of something. Beware of a Jesus with divinity sucked out of him. Beware of a de-divinitized Jesus. Because what John is telling us, in no uncertain terms, is that Jesus is God. He is God the Son who before his incarnation as a man was eternal, divine, and the creative word. It is an astounding claim, isn't it? It is truly profound. It is awesome. And it comes actually from Jesus' own testimony. This is not something that John has just dreamt up of his own accord. If you've got your Bible there, why don't you flick on to John chapter 10? John chapter 10 verse 30 to 33. I said before that many of the themes of this introductory section can be traced right through the Gospel. Let's just look at this particular one. John chapter 10, verse 30 to 33. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. What did he mean by that? Well, we'll learn by looking at what reaction he got, verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The Jews at the time understood what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be God. I and the Father are one. So we must continually be wary of de-divinitising Jesus, making him just a man, just another religious figure, just another prophet. Jesus has claimed to be much, much more. And John has relayed Jesus' claim to us. Now, to get very practical for a moment, I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness. See, an immediate sticking point once you sort of get into a conversation between Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses, is the deity of Jesus. Was Jesus God or not? And the Jehovah's Witnesses say, Jesus is not fully God. And what's more, they actually have a technical reason for saying that. They say, look, John chapter 1, verse 1, doesn't actually say Jesus is God. What they say is, they say, well, Really, if you look at the original language, the Greek of the New Testament, what it actually says is, the Word was a God. If you look at the original language, they say, that's what it says. The Word was a God. Now, we have to be truthful. That is a possible way to to translate that verse. You could translate it that way. But the point they make is that is how you must translate it. The Word was a God. And that claim is just not true. That is not the only legitimate way to translate that sentence. It doesn't have to be translated a God. You can just as legitimately translate it as the Word was God, as it's probably rendered in your translation here today. That is God with a capital G. The Word was God a proper noun. And the reason I can say that's legitimate to translate that way is there's lots of other examples of sentences in the New Testament where proper nouns like God in that sentence have that definite sort of translation. There are other examples in the New Testament where that's entirely legitimate and uncontroversial. So I just mention that to you because often you will be thrown a technical argument, a grammatical argument, with which you may then go... Well, I can't touch that. So hopefully just with a little bit of advice today, that may give you some equipment, uh, at least, to engage and uh, refute that position when it's put forward to you. So why does the deity of Jesus matter? Why must we hold on to this? Well, it's simply this, friends. If Jesus is not truly God, then we must not worship him. If Jesus is not fully God, we must not worship him. At the end of John's Gospel, the risen Jesus confronts one of his apostles, one of his chosen witnesses, except this witness had been doubting that Jesus really did rise from the dead. His name was Thomas. Jesus appears to the risen Thomas and he confronts him. And what was Thomas's response in chapter 20, verse 28? Thomas, seeing the risen Jesus, given all his doubts, he goes... Mate, that's way cool. How do you do that? Does he respond with, no, he doesn't say that. Thomas's response when confronted with the risen Jesus is, my Lord and my God. He responds with worship to this Jesus. This Jesus who is God. See, we worship this Jesus not because of tradition, Not because we dreamt it up, but out of a conviction that Jesus is who he said he was. He is God. So that's the first one. The eternal, divine and creative word. But this word is also the enfleshed, revealing word. Verse 14 would have come as an absolute shock. ...to people in John's day, and frankly, it still should come as a shock today. Have a look at it. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one-of-a-kind Son... ...who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh? Now, that would have been shocking news for philosophies of John's day... ...because they were convinced that the Spirit is good... But the flesh, the material, the, the the bod, the body, that's bad. Flesh, bad. Spirit, thumbs up. So when to say that the Word, the divine Word, became flesh, that's not just icky. That's just uncomprehendable. That makes no sense at all. That God could become a human being, take on material, become flesh. Now. For Christians and those who know the Old Testament, it's not, that is not the challenge because we know God created all things good, that matter is good under God's creation. But it's still entirely shocking and astounding that God will become a man. And it truly is that He became a man. He didn't put on a disguise. It wasn't like my kids who play dress-ups. Look dad, I'm a policeman. Look dad, I'm a ballerina. Look. Now I'm a human being, says God. It's not dress-ups. It's not a disguise. He didn't just put on a cloak of humanity. He became flesh. He became a frail, a limited, a mortal human being like you. The eternal God did. Like us, the Bible says, in every respect, including being tempted. Save only that he was without sin. And he came at a very particular point in human history. There's uh, several places in this chapter where John deliberately, I think, ties it into God's plan of salvation through human history. And we're not going to spend time looking at them all. I'll just point out a few. He talks about Moses and the giving of the law down in verse 17. He talks about John the Baptist twice in the passage, tying, again, Jesus into what God is doing in salvation history. But two I want to just point out to you particularly, he gives Jesus the title of Christ there in verse 17. Now, Christ is a very particular title. It identifies Jesus as the promised Messiah, or the Anointed One, which ties Jesus into the great promises that God had made that one day he would send his Christ to establish God's righteous rule in the world. And the, the notion of Jesus as the Christ, the promised anointed king who would come, that is a very important category that John will use throughout the presentation of Jesus' life in this Gospel. In fact, if you go to the very end of the Gospel, go to chapter 20, verse 31, John says why he's writing this book. He says very clearly, These things are written so that you, the reader, addressing you and me here today, so that you, the reader, might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's trying to identify who is this Christ and he's saying, look, it is Jesus. That's one of the ways that I think John is tying Jesus in to God's purposes in salvation history. The other way that he ties Jesus in to God's purposes in salvation history is there in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking about what that phrase really signifies. The the Word made his dwelling among us. Literally, it's the Word pitched his tent among us. And that harks back to Exodus, chapter 25, verse 8, you might like to jot it down, where the Lord says, then have them make a sanctuary for me, And I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. A tabernacle is a tent type of thing. Uh, And what we read in John 1.14 is that the word became flesh and tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. Now that is quite astounding, isn't it? That the eternal divine word would dwell right in the midst of human beings. And it is a massive theme of the Bible. There's different ways you can tell the Bible's story, sort of summarise it, Themes that go from beginning to end. And this idea that God might dwell with his creatures is one of those things that you can use to tell the whole of the Bible story. You can trace it right there from Genesis in the Garden of Eden where the Lord God walked with Adam and Eve. There's God in the midst of his people. And you can trace it through the history of the nation of Israel. This is God's wonderful plan, that one day he might dwell together with his creatures. And the ideal was lost when Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden because of their sin. And the rest of the story that the Bible tells is God's initiative to re-establish that dwelling relationship. So you can see it there in the Exodus, when God has saved his people out of Egypt. He's taking them to the promised land and he says, Make a tent for me, a tabernacle, so that I might dwell there amongst you. But, of course, God's people, when they get to the promised land, they again reject God and they're sent into exile. So God dwelling with his people again is lost. So the prophets pick it up and say, look, one day, guys, God will fulfill this promise and he will dwell with us permanently. You could uh, look it up there in Ezekiel 37, verse 27 and 28. Let me just read that to you. Ezekiel 37, 27 and 28. God says through the prophet... My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. That's God's promise to one day dwell permanently with his people. Has that day come, friends, when God dwells permanently with his people? Because if you go to the very end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21 verse 3, John is given, the same John, given a great vision of from God of the future. And he says there in 21 verse 3 of Revelation, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, that is in the future, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That is, Christians are still waiting for the consummation, the final fulfilment, when God will dwell with us in all its fullness. Now, why am I going into this all this detail? What I want to say is there is this great theme through the Bible of God coming to dwell with his people. And then there in John chapter 1, verse 14, what did we read? We read, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He pitched his tent... It is nothing less than the, the beginning of the fulfilment of the great promise of God to take up permanent residence with his people. Here is God come to town. Here is God taking up residence, a physical presence in the person of Jesus Christ. And friends, I mean, now for you and me, the Lord Jesus is no longer with us in physical presence. He dwells with us by his spirit. And we're waiting for that consummation, that fulfilment, when God will dwell with us physically and spiritually. But here, at the coming of the Word into the world, was the wondrous beginning of the fulfilment of that grand promise of God to take up residence with His people. And so why did the Word become flesh? Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one-of-a-kind Son who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This word became flesh is a revealing word. Jesus Christ has made known what we could not see. He has made known the Heavenly Father. Again, this is not something John's making up. He's reporting the teaching of Jesus himself. A bit later on in John's Gospel, at chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus will say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you look through the Gospel, we'll learn at different times that Jesus does the works of his Father, that Jesus speaks the words of his Father. Jesus Christ makes known the Father. But what else does the word Jesus reveal? Look again at verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one-of-a-kind Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What John's saying is that us apostles, John and his cohort, who lived and walked and talked with Jesus, what they saw was the glory of the Father's one-of-a-kind Son, a glory that was full of grace and truth. Now, glory, again, is going to be a very important theme through John's account of Jesus' ministry. But it's a very difficult word to pin down. How would you define glory? Well, this is my attempt, and I'm sure it's lame, and you'll probably come up with a better one, and please do come and tell me. I've tried to think of glory in terms of supreme magnificence. Glory as supreme magnificence. What the apostles saw in Jesus was the supreme magnificence of God the Son. That magnificence, that glory was revealed in Jesus' signs, as we'll see, and preeminently was revealed in his death and resurrection and exaltation back to the Father. That's where Jesus' supreme magnificence was seen. And it's a glory that's full of grace and truth. I think underlying much of what John is saying here, particularly in verse 14, is actually a passage from the Old Testament, Exodus 33 and 34. So you remember what John, I think, is trying to do. John is trying to to explain what God, the one true God, was doing in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And in order to explain that, he uses what Jesus himself has taught John. And he uses categories drawn from the Old Testament. And this passage, Exodus 33 and 34, I think, helps make sense of what John means when he says Jesus' glory was full of grace and truth. So if you've got your Bible there... Can you flick up for a moment Exodus 33? Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 33. God's people have come out of the land of Egypt. They're in the desert on the way to the promised land. And a couple of different passages that I think are key here from chapters 33 and 34. I'm not going to read it all out, but just point out that in chapter 33, verses 7 to 11. That describes how the Lord God came down in a pillar of cloud to speak with Moses at the tent of meeting, or literally in the Greek version of the Old Testament it says the tabernacle of witness. So we're already tying into some of the themes we've seen. Here is God coming to speak in the midst of his people, the notion of a tent and a tabernacle with them. Then a bit later in verse 18 of that chapter, notice Moses said to God. Now show me your glory. Right, that was one of the words there in John chapter 1. Show me your glory. Now then the Lord goes on to agree in verse 19. Yep, okay. So he makes a comment in verse 20 that no one can see him and live. Remember John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has seen the Father. Moses, we learn in verse 23, is going to be have to be content with a back view of God. Can't see his face and survive. And then a bit later on in chapter thirty. verse 6 when the Lord does actually come down and appear to Moses notice what happens here's the Lord revealing his glory and what does he say in verse 6 of chapter 34 and the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness the key phrase is the last one, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's closely related to John 1, 14, where we know that Jesus was full, abounding, of grace and truth. Conceptually, God's love, his steadfast covenant love, is related to grace. And faithfulness and truth can even sometimes be the same word. So I think John is actually using the background here from Exodus 34 to say That when Jesus appeared, he didn't just portray a general sort of grace or graciousness. He he wasn't just any old trueness. Now, I think John is actually saying, we have seen Jesus' glory. It was the glory of the Father's one-of-a-kind Son. And what that displayed to us was his abundant, generous faithfulness to the people of his covenant. See, that idea of God's generosity to his covenant people, it's picked up then in verses 16 and 17 of John 1. Verse 16 should literally read, from the fullness of his grace, we've all received grace replacing grace. He goes on then to explain that in verse 17, God graciously gave us the law through Moses and that grace has been replaced or superseded with the generous covenant faithfulness that came in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to be talking more about that next week. Well, so what sort of response do we make to this? Well, a moment's reflection first. The one true God is a speaking God. He spoke in the Old Testament in words of creation, of healing, of deliverance. And in those words that God speaks, he reveals himself. Just as the words I speak reveal something about me. But see, my words are frail and faulty. But his words are not. What we're told here in John one is that God, the Word, he is God's word to creation, in which he reveals himself. Hebrews one puts it: in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. <coughs> what does this mean for our university? What does it mean for our culture? I think it means simply this. Agnosticism is no longer a legitimate option. See, agnosticism is that position where you say, look, I don't know if there's a God or not. Maybe He exists. I'm not saying I'm an atheist. You know, Maybe God exists, but maybe He doesn't. And we just can't know. I don't know, and maybe we can't know. Well, what I want to say is John chapter 1 says that agnosticism, that sort of position is no longer legitimate because God has done something to blast away agnosticism. He's revealed himself in the Word become flesh. That's why working through this Gospel of John over the course of this year, which we're going to do here at the EU in several different bites spread throughout the year, we're going to work our way through John's Gospel That is why that is an incredibly important thing for us to be doing. Because this university is rampant with agnosticism, if not atheism. That's the dominant sort of mindset, I think, that pervades this institution. And what's going to blast that away? Will philosophical reasoning really dispel agnosticism? Will scientific debate? Well, maybe they'll have... Go some way, but in the end, what it will be that blast away agnosticism will be the testimony of the eyewitnesses who were there when the word became flesh. They saw it with their eyes. They heard it with their ears. And it's their testimony that's being transmitted to you and me under God's great hand. That is the testimony that will blast away agnosticism. Well, that's pretty good news, isn't it? But you know, that's not the best news of this passage. That is that not, oh, I think, even really the point, the overall big point of this passage. The overall big point of this passage is much grander than just how God is going to dispel with agnosticism or how God is going to do away with human ignorance about himself. It's very interesting. The big point of this passage was the point I had as number two on the outline. That those who receive Jesus Christ become children of God. Uh, People who've studied this passage with great care have noticed that you can actually arrange it into an in and out pattern. You can start with the verses one and two about God the Word, and you can match them up with verse eighteen about the Father and the Son. Then you can work your way in to the very middle of the passage. You know, along the way you have stuff about John the Baptist at the top and the bottom, and you work your way into the middle. What's right at the middle? What's the focus of this passage? Well, it's a particular phrase in verse 12. It's the phrase, He gave the right to become children of God. That is the point that people can now become children of God. Maybe the structure of John 1 points to it, but certainly the whole rest of John's Gospel does if you go again to the, to the purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing in his name, you might have eternal life. The goal is not to spell human ignorance. The goal is that you might have eternal life, that you might be born again as a child of God, that you might have God so transform your existence by his word and spirit. That you become a new creation. That you have a living relationship with your Heavenly Father. That you have eternal life. And how does that come about? It comes about by receiving the Word. There in verse 12 and 13. And that's parallel to believing in His name. Just as the Word was there, the agent of creation of all things, so the Word is here. And if you receive the Word, that is Jesus, you are recreated into a child of God. Why do we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to this university? To dispel ignorance? Yes. But in the end, it's so that they might receive Him who is the Word in flesh, that they might believe in His name, that they might be granted the most undeserved of rights, that they might have the right to become children of God. Well, I started today by talking about two words that describe this passage, profound and awesome. And I hope you leave today with some sense of the appropriateness of those words. But I'm going to leave you with one more word that I think describes this passage. Thrilling. This passage is thrilling. This is a passage that is exciting. It is exciting to grasp what God that God has revealed himself. And it is joyous beyond measure to know that by receiving Jesus the Word, you and I can become what we could never be, children of God. So I I hope this week in the lectures that you will sit through that you will learn many great things. It may be a vain hope. But I do hope you'll learn many great things. But I wonder, will you hear anything that is as thrilling as what God has shown us today? That He has revealed Himself in the Word become flesh. And that by receiving that Word, we can become children of God. Let that thrill us to the core this week.